The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from the Slate Studios in New York City. Welcome to Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the preening self-celebration of human striving and shamelessness that is a presidential campaign cycle. I'm Alex Wagner from MSNBC, and in Washington, D.C., we have Mark Leibovich, chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. And today, this very special day in July, we have our inaugural guest, David Axelrod, director of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, who was, of course, senior advisor to President Obama for the critical years of 2009 to 2011. David, it's so awesome to have you on the program. Annie Lowry is out, which makes us sad, but you make us very, very happy. Well, I'm happy. Yeah, no, I, I knew right away when you said the July thing that it was because everybody else was on vacation. No, but that's not. Okay. That's all right. No, that's all good. No, anyway. no, no, no. We thought we have we have this 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 just heart aching absence. How can we fill it? Who will bring the most joy to the table? All right, well, I'm happy to be always happy to be with you guys. All right, David, we have a lot on tap, and I know Mark has been doing a lot of um, late night cramming to prepare for this podcast. <laughs> uh, this week, first up, President Obama scolded Republicans for the outrageous comments that some of them made along the campaign trail. Will it usher in more respectable discourse? Or even more President Obama real talk? That's a joke question, right? Yeah. Then after that, we're going to talk about Ted Cruz, who recently criticized Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell by calling him a liar over and over and over again, which begs the important philosophical question, can Ted Cruz out-Trump Donald Trump? And finally, Hillary Clinton is back in the hot seat for like the gajillionth time amid some new revelations about her personal email and also some polling showing her losing ground on key issues of trust in critical swing states. We will ask ourselves how much this actually matters. And then we'll end the show with a little segment we like to call If I Were in Charge, where we put on little dictator hats. Okay, so moving on to the very first and big talker. President Obama responded to comments made by Mike Huckabee wherein Mike Huckabee said the Iran nuclear deal would be akin to taking Israelis and marching them to the door of the oven. President Obama said the particular comments of Mr. Huckabee are just part of a general pattern we've seen that would be considered ridiculous if it weren't so sad. Boom, drop the mic. David, I was pleasantly surprised and found myself quietly fist pumping when I read the transcript of those remarks as they came over the transom while the president's away in Ethiopia. How did you hear his words? Did you really hear him over the transom? No. I thought that was... I wish. <laughs> it's actually a woolly mammoth that powers the, the wire at MSNBC. Look, you know what it read like? It read like that scene from the American president, Andrew, whatever his name is, calling out the antics of the uh, foolish Richard Dreyfus Republican. You know, Michael Douglas was the... Anyway, so that's what it felt like. It just felt like <laughs> the adult sort of giving the back of the hand to these, uh, to these foolish antics. It was really offensive. Now I'm speaking as a Jew. I mean, it was offensive to me. I think it was offensive to a lot of people that he would invoke that metaphor. And so tastefulness uh, prohibits me saying like it sounded like the prattlings of a candidate who's cooked. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I think uh, you, you, in answer to your question, I think you're going to see more and more of this because uh, the game now among Republicans is to see 
who can light themselves on fire enough to to move ahead and maybe get on a debate stage somewhere. David, can we actually put an end to all fire and, and hot and burning metaphors in this conversation? Well, <laughs> what we should do is put, in our politics, we should put to rest any Holocaust reference, reference. to Nazism and ovens and whole, I mean, that was 9-11, just, uh, slavery, outrageous. all off limits. Yeah. Yes, and I, I'm all for putting an end, a kibosh on Holocaust references, but this is to your point, David, and and Mark, it's not just the 2016 field, Tom Cotton, and and President Obama shouted him out too. Tom Cotton, the senator, the junior senator from Arkansas, said Secretary Kerry acted like Pontius Pilate by letting the International Atomic Energy Agency negotiate separate inspection provisions with Iran to verify the, the agreement. I mean, so if the Holocaust isn't incendiary enough, how about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Is that is does that you know what I mean? Like it's a it's a race to the bottom. But think about where we were last week. Last week we were talking about oh Trump. He's really touched the third rail. He's gone after POWs, John McCain, and then the, a few weeks before right. that it was oh right. he's called right. all Mexicans rapists and right. criminals. I mean, where where are we headed here? I, I guess what I would ask David, sort of thinking about this strategically, is when the president decides you know while in Africa to actually weigh in on this. Do you think that there is actually, you know, we can win some easy points here, or he's actually just responding at a very guttural level? You know level, what, sort of my, my read of the president right now is he's just speaking his mind. I mean, and not just on this, but on everything. I think he's made a decision that he's going to go out in these last uh, couple of years simply saying what's on his mind and letting the chips fall where they may. I'm sure... Yeah, I mean, I think he was fundamentally offended by what he saw. Right. Would you call it the zero fucks stage of his presidency? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, because yeah. this is the other part of it, and this is obviously the sort of more media inside baseball question, but I, I thought this was really interesting because the line from the White House, and Mark, I know you know this too, is that the president doesn't pay attention to the noise, right? But in his comments, I mean, he referenced stuff that Tom Cotton's had said about Pontius Pilate. He referenced stuff that Ted Cruz had said on the Iran deal that the Obama administration will become the leading financier of terrorism against America in the world. He knows what the critics are saying about him, and he referenced those criticisms. And that's not usually a place you find the president, which I, which I guess is further evidence of maybe this is, in fact, the zero-fuck stage of his presidency. Yeah, well, but, you know, I, I wrote in my, my book, Shameless Plug. Part Go for of it. Program, Do yeah, it. My book, Believer. It, it's uh, a great that, book. Um, every president says, I don't read this, I don't watch the news, and so on and so forth. But he could quote... Uh, the most obscure blogs to me. You know, he he was an inveterate reader of the commentary. He reads it, um, and he, you know, it is. This has been a game for time immemorial. Where the White House says, "Oh, the president pay attention to that stuff," uh, and the president's like furiously reading through stuff. Uh, <laughs> you don't think he listens to this podcast? No, I was going to say, what about podcast <laughs> I mean, downloads? How low? I mean, how downstream does he get? We'll find, I guess we're going to find we're gonna out. We're going to find out just <laughs> how much of the bottom of the barrel he's scraping. I'm, I'm counting on him uh, not getting down this far, actually. That's why I'm being so <laughs> candid about the whole that's thing. That's what we were counting that's on, too. your insurance too, policy to say whatever. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we, did, we even, did you even know we had a podcast when, when we approached you? <laughs> actually, don't answer but I'm, that. I'm, I'm going to spread the word. <laughs> that's what we so. need, Axe. <laughs> I'm going to do yes. it. I'm going to do it. But... Um, 
But look, I think this is the sort of thing that fundamentally would offend him. But don't you think also we're in a situation where presumably someone like Jeb Bush, Reince Priebus, would probably agree that, that, that some of this rhetoric is just appalling? And, you know, it's not like Trump or Ted Cruz is going to listen to any voice of authority you know, within their own party, I, I, I doubt that well, the president. Actually, their whole candidacies are predicated on anti-authoritarianism. Right. They're, they are the anti-establishment wing of the party. Huckabee's trying to join it, and, you know. So, no, they're not going to. So, what is Trump? If Trump, what if they're the anti-establishment? What, what does that make Trump? He's made himself. He's insinuated himself into the leadership. He is speaking directly to that Palin Limbaugh constituency. Those people who showed up at the rally, the Palin rallies in 2008. There they were the uh, forerunners of the Tea Party, and they're fundamentally anti-establishment. Uh, and he has touched that nerve, and he's done, you know, he'd done it before. I think it's worth pointing out he was a leader in the polls uh, briefly in 2011, too, all around the birther issue. Hmm. Um, so he's good at exploiting these issues and reaching that constituency. That strain of birtherism, of white grievance, of paranoia has like been a part of the base. And now Donald Trump has basically just turned the lights on. And yes. and, and, and I, in some way, is that is that not relieving? President Obama has heard the garbage that has been said about him and is finally responding head on, you know, and in some ways, as gross as it is, and I don't condone the use of the Holocaust imagery or the crucifixion of Christ, but in sort of the spirit of letting it all hang out, is this not in some way, I mean, a more honest discourse that we're having in tw- ahead of 2016 than we would normally be having? It, it is an ugly, ugly kind of element of our politics uh, that we're seeing on display. So, David, if you were in in this if you were working in this race for Hillary or whoever how much of your brain would be just utterly delighted just the politi- the political operative part of your brain would be utterly delighted by watching the other party just really go off the rails like this and how much of you as a citizen would be genuinely saddened by <laughs> what you see and what you hear going on as a strategist you know what I'd be doing mark I'd be watching very carefully to see how the other candidates navigated this mm-hmm. you know this could be a real opportunity for a candidate like Jeb Bush to separate in a way that if he can navigate his way through the process, uh, he can emerge as a much stronger national candidate than they've had in the previous cycles because he will have stood up to you know this raging id and uh, would have then certified himself to moderate swing voters. But David, can I just interrupt you for a second? Mm -hmm. I mean, Trump's been threatening a third party candidacy in Mm -hmm. recent days. And Reince Priebus has sort of gone out of his way to say that's not a good idea. And it seems to me like if we really thought this could be a chance for the moderates and the reasonable people in the Republican Party to stand up and say, yeah, but I'm just saying, you know, here's your chance. Let him run away with the people that other folks, including John McCain, have dubbed the crazies. Get him out of the party and move forward with the future. You're literally, especially if you well, really, that would truly be, don't that, think... that would be... You certainly would be moving forward for... Uh, you would be acknowledging what has been a fact, which is that there is this faction within the Republican Party that is way to the right of the rest of the country, and you'd be basically divorcing yourself right. from that faction. Yeah, but and why not? Was, but you would be also almost certainly costing yourself the election because the Democrats... 
uh, and Democratic-leaning voters are a more coherent group. So you're basically, you know, and I, you've seen the polls with Trump in there. He's getting 20%. Bush, I think, was reduced to 30 Um It would be, you know, it's a very, very tough call. But I, I think that it's death by fire. I, you said no more fire, but death by fire or <laughs> death okay. by hanging. Uh, if you... Right. If you if you if you embrace Trump in order to mollify that faction, you're rendering yourself unelectable just as surely as if he runs as an independent. And by the way, I'm not one who believes that Donald Trump will run as an independent because he's a thoroughly improvisational guy and running as an independent is a really labor intensive process to get on the ballots and do all things that are necessary. He could hire people to do it, but some, before I read in the newspaper, they're not even signing people up to go to the caucuses right now. So I don't think, I think one of the interesting things here is what does Ted Cruz do? And I know I'm jumping ahead, Alex, in your format, because he's getting squeezed out here. And I, the way he went after McConnell makes you wonder, how does he exist within the Republican Party. Well, yeah, let's let's actually talk about Ted Cruz, Mark, and I would love to get your your thoughts on Ted Cruz, who called Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the senior senator from Kentucky, a lying liar, lie teller, lie maker, or some version of the word liar, multiple times, five times to be exact, in the course of his recent Ted Cruz's recent Senate floor rant about the wait for it, the Export Import Bank. <laughs> No, I mean, Mark, so I actually am very fascinated by Ted Cruz and not because he's such an articulate spokesperson for the works of Dr. Zeus, but he has been, as they say on the streets, he has been got in, in all of this by Trump and by the climate and the sort of whirlwind around Trump. It seems to have left Ted Cruz behind. And I wonder whether you think that's for just the immediate or for the medium term or the long term. Well, I, I think it's not just Cruz. I mean, what, what's interesting is that you have almost this escalation, this almost this arms race of people who are trying to win over this this id, as David said, part of the Republican Party, and just who can outrage more. And you know, Mick, Mitch McConnell's kind of a clever boogeyman if you're on that part of the Republican Party, right? I mean, he is he's establishment. He's you know, I don't think he's a beloved figure on the right by by any stretch. But I, I do think that everyone, just by the sheer numbers of this, has their own challenges of what niche they're going to try to play for, right? David, if you were working, say, for Jeb Bush, yes. w- would you focus on a niche or would you try to actually play survival and try to sort of wait out the others and let the numbers get smaller and the pie get bigger? Good question. I think Jeb Bush is in a far better position to wait it out because he has superior resources, uh, a network, and he is, in fact, the establishment candidate. And the history of the Republican Party is that the establishment candidates, when the field winnows out, generally win. He needs to push back on Trump, but he doesn't have to be outrageous in doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in this debate it's going to be very important if he's going to be the adult that he act like the adult. What's interesting about this Republican field is, is, I mean, for as much of a clown show as it's devolved into, largely because of Trump and efforts to match Trump, it's actually an incredibly strong field. I mean, people focus on the numbers, but there's really not, there, there's not a candidate out there that you hear Republicans saying, wow, I wish so-and-so were, would run. I mean, they're right. all running. That's because I mean, everyone's that's running. Because that's because they're running. all running. That's true. But I mean, I think relative, I mean, the, the Democrats, on the contrary, have an incredibly weak field. I mean, I think it's... 
Oh, um, interesting. Hillary, a socialist, and play for rain. Oh, I, I bl- firmly believe that. I think the field in OA was much, much better. That's um, a very good segue, Mark. But before we get <laughs> to that last segment, tweet us what you think about how you would strategize Jeb Bush's campaign at Pod for America. Mark, you were just talking about the weakness of the Democratic field. And by weakness, I I think you're focusing on the fact that there are not as many people. There are less than 727 people running for the office on the Democratic side. And there is a presumed front runner, uh, Hillary Clinton, who has had her share of, shall we say, bumps in the last week. Uh, Two State Department inspectors general announced that they found maybe some kind of information they shouldn't have found on her private email account, the one used during her time as Secretary of State. But also, there's some polling that shows Hillary Clinton in some trouble on the issue of uh, honesty and leadership as far as voters in key swing states in Colorado, Iowa, and Virginia. So, David, I, I I am obsessed with being not obsessed about polling. But but I actually, I mean, these the, we're getting semi-consistent information on Hillary Clinton, her personality as it is distilled by the, the people who answer polling questions. So, like, if you're running Clinton's campaign at this point, I mean, what do you think to do in the face of this information? Well, first of all, I wouldn't uh, panic. And I agree with you, by the way, on polling. I mean, they, they, there were seven different front runners for the Republicans in 2011, including uh, Michelle Bachman, Herman Cain, Rick Perry, Donald Trump. You know, so I, I really think people need to put these polls in, in where they belong. And, but one thing that's been consistent is that uh, Hillary's numbers among Democrats are in the 80s, you know, uh, in terms of her favorable uh, rating. And yes, uh, I've seen the polling on uh, trust. I think trust is a very tough measure for politicians right now. And obviously she's exacerbated those questions uh, with some of the things that have uh, occurred. But I have to say, I've said before, and I still believe it today, I don't believe that I have seen anyone in a stronger position, a non-incumbent for a nomination in my lifetime of either party. So, uh, you know, maybe Ike, you know, or I don't know. What she does need to do is get into a regular routine of campaigning, the, the natural flow of it. I would do more. Um, but I would wait, do David, more... can I just, again, I'm sorry to keep, I, I don't mean to inter- be the interrupting chicken. That's but, okay. I mean, get into the flow of campaigning. I mean, hasn't, shouldn't Hillary Clinton already be well into the flow of campaigning, given her extensive experience. Although I think it's late for all of us and early for voters. Right. So I think we should remember that. I've always said, you know, and I think I probably said it to you, Alex, that she was a, uh, I thought, a very poor candidate in 2007, kind of cloistered in the presumption of inevitability, very cautious, carried her inevitability around like a porcelain bowl and didn't want to drop it. And then when we, uh, we be, meaning the Obama campaign, beat her in the Iowa caucuses, almost overnight she became a different candidate. She threw caution away. She became much more revealing of herself, more connecting, became much more of a grassroots campaigner. Um, I think she needs to be that person in this campaign. I, I agree. I don't think that, that these you know email stories are, are by any stretch fatal for her. And, and I don't think that these trust polls are going to lose her the nomination. But I do think that as indicated by how she's campaigning 
um, and seems to be walking around like she's sort of expecting a chandelier on her, to fall on her head at any second, <laughs> that, that there's a sense that she's playing not to lose. And, and I don't think there's much way she can lose this primary. I mean, I think she's almost been lulled into a false sense of security by the incredible weakness of this field. And look, I mean, I think she's fine. I think maybe she's made a decision that she's going to focus on raising money. Uh, she's not going to tempt fate by going out on the road and dealing with the press very much. But I, I agree. I mean, I think that her she is a much more compelling, uh, even dare I say, likable figure when she is playing scared and is she, and you know she's actually feels like she's in a fight rather than saying the word fight twenty times. I uh, agree with that. But uh, well, on that subject of fight, though, I will say when you look at qualities that are predictors of presidential uh, candidates and their success, strength is one. You know, and she, she's tenacious. The other is, uh, you know, empathy do, cares about people like mm. me. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, I think, uh, you know, she's working very hard, it seems, to try and emphasize those two qualities in building her candidacy here. I, I always love quoting Eddie Stanky, who was a baseball manager in the 1960s, who used to say, no risk baseball is second division baseball. Mm. I think if you don't play like you're in a real game here. If you if you take anything for granted, you, you know you run risk, and I don't think the risk for her is in the primaries. Um, you know, I think if you, and I know I'm going to offend some of your listeners when I say this, and I like Bernie Sanders, but wait, who do you, you think listens to this podcast, Axe? I know them. I know both of them. <laughs> you know, all three of them. <laughs> right. But uh, but the uh, the fact is, if you were going to choose an opponent, and you were Hillary Clinton. Wouldn't you choose the 73-year-old socialist from Vermont who speaks with a Brooklyn accent? I mean, you mentioned a few weeks ago, David, though, you said that that he's like a, what, a fling, and you know he's going to go. What was that quote? It was was a good quote. I said that he was like a summer fling, good guy to have fun with because you know he was going to be around town. That's the only time Bernie Sanders has been considered (laughs) in the concept of a summer fling and a romance. And you know what? Speak for yourself. (laughs) That's really like the only time I've thought of him like that. Thank you, David. But you know, but but look, talk to talk to all the. Bernie maniacs out yeah, there, and they're in love, the burn. They're in love but, right now. But the burn. Now, you said that about a month ago, or three or four weeks ago. Is this actually a an affair at this point? Or are we still in fling mode? I think Ooh, that he yes. will get votes. I've always felt he's going to get votes, but I don't think it's nearly enough to make it a serious challenge. And, uh, and yet it's serious enough to obscure everybody else who wants to challenge. Can, can I actually throw out a thought exercise, actually, before we come out of this segment because someone on Twitter, so we know that it has a great deal of intellectual heft behind it, um, asked me the rhetorical question the other day, why is it that all, the liberal press, of course, you know, I'm being accused the, of being the liberal press, media. the lame, whatever they're calling me, <laughs> why, why do you always sort of dismiss the, you know, the Donald Trump supporters as crazies as John McCain did, but when 25, 30% of the Democratic Party are solidly behind a socialist, that's not seen as embracing a, a very unpalatable and offensive notion to He's a lot of Americans. He's an elected senator. Yes, yeah. he is. But I would ask you this, okay, if you were to have a generic ballot, okay, xenophobic racist on one side or socialist on the other side, who wins? Socialist. Really? In America, in the United States of America today? Well, maybe I'm just an eternal optimist, but I just, well, I mean, who's I voting? The fact of the matter is that, that Bernie Sanders is 
not really a socialist. He is a liberal Democrat. True. Okay, he's not. Uh, he's not talking about nationalizing industries. He's not. You know, he's basically talking about a more progressive tax system. He's talking about, he's talking about Scandinavia. Uh, uh, stricter rules governing banks. He's. I don't know. It is a. That is. What did you call it? A thought. Uh, it's a question thought from exercise. a Twitter follower. What is, what's the word? is that what you call these things? I, I think. I'm, you know. What else do you do? I, I'm, I'm not going to get too exercised about that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think again. Maybe this is just me disconnected. Me living in my bubble of optimism. Do I sound self-loathing enough? Um, but I feel like, I mean, I know you can speak to this, David, and I, I, don't, I wonder what you think, Mark, but I think we as Americans want to believe in the future of our country, and we want to believe that whoever we're electing is a good shepherd. I not... refuse myself from any bubbles of optimism. Yeah, but I just think here. it's really hard to win by terrifying people. President oh, Clinton said the, the most optimistic candidate always wins. I think that's mostly true. I mean, Richard Nixon won in 1968, but, uh, you know, so it's not always the case. But although he tried to be sunny in that election um, in a kind of race-baiting way. So <laughs> I, 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 I kind of agree with that. But the fundamental point is I don't think Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party, and I don't know too many people who actually believe that he's going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. I, don't, I know Donald Trump's not going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. So if, Demi, if Bernie Sanders is a Democratic fling, what is Donald Trump to Republicans? Uh, well, thanks for this imagery well, that we're I, I about to see. Well, I think he is a—he he also is a fling, <laughs> but he, he is a— he is the champion of a sentiment within the Republican Party, a faction within the Republican Party that has been very powerful. It's the Palin faction. It's the Tea Party faction. It's the faction that the Republican Party has allowed to lead it around by the nose uh, since 2008. So and you're saying uh, you're saying mistress. I don't know. Might I gotta, stick around. I got to think that over here. Mistresses <laughs> lead misters around by the nose. Okay. <laughs> Gents, we're going to close this out with our what speed are you round. Us gents, yes, I oh called you gents because you were both alive during the time of Dwight D. Eisenhower. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are nearly out of time for this week's podcast. If you like it, please tweet about it in 140 characters or less at Pod for America. Okay, so David, at the end of each podcast, we have a weekly speed segment that is called "If I Were in Charge," wherein each one of us goes around and, and say a minute or less, explains what we would do in politics, in media, in anything, if we were in charge. And the more incendiary and revolutionary your idea, the better. Or profane. Or profane. So, David, if you were in charge, what would you do? Uh, If I were in charge, I would uh, ban coverage, certainly at the top of the news, of uh, anyone who was a reality star, right, reality TV star, and now purported to be a uh, candidate for president of the United States. Fair mm-hmm. enough. You and the Huffington Post. Put him in the Yeah, it sounds very Huffington Post. <laughs> Put him in there. the D block. Mm-hmm. Mark Leibovich, what would you do if you were in charge? Well, I mean, if I were in charge, I would like to pride myself on integrating other people's good ideas into my platform. So I saw today on one of my, my oracles, The Onion, um, a headline that said that the Republican Party was offering the 16, 17, however many there are now, candidates for president, a cash voucher 
if they would be willing to step out of this race <laughs> and 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 you know they would have a voucher but they also could like they could cash it in for a future race like they would get you know some kind of they could run in 2020 or 2024 or whatever um i think that would be very useful i think that would pair the field uh conveniently in time for the first debate um i think as a practical matter it, it just might make things a little bit more manageable and easier for for the consumer so that's what I would do if I were in I like the cash, I cash buyout. The cash I'm voucher. all for it. I'm all yeah. for it. I can be bought out of this podcast if you- Alex, if you what would you do if you were in charge? If I were in charge, Mark, I'd put this whole Trump thing to rest by offering an unmoderated 30-minute debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Hmm. Because we know what would happen. And I don't think Donald Trump what would, would be running. I don't think Donald Trump would be running for president anymore. I don't think that that's Or maybe true. I'm wrong. Can and I ask a question? Win. I know this is the speed round. Why doesn't somebody offer a debate to all the also-rans that run si- uh, side by side with the Fox debate and just dare the Republican Party to sanction the people who participate in it? Well, they uh, are. They're offering a, pr- a 5 p.m. debate to the also-rans. So yes. like an undercard kind of An thing. undercard yeah, get fight. Yeah, but I think the JV game might be fun, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, for I sure. I would run it right side by side. If oh, I you're saying kinda. compete for the same audience. Yeah. So basically, C-SPAN three would get like Bobby Jindal against George Pataki, and and that. Like, That's the other thing is to have like an NCAA ranking where they each, you know, like the, the 16th seed goes against oh, the absolutely. first seed until you get bracketology. To the final. You sound yeah. like someone that spent time with Barack Obama, a big fan <laughs> of brackets, as we know. All right, gents. <laughs> well, what's the corollary there? What's the what's the what's what what do we call you, lady? Oh, okay, lady. lady. See ya. Well, you know, but she wasn't even born in the Nixon administration. Yeah, <laughs> or, I'm very, very, very young. May I emphasize that I am so young that I, 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 I don't even remember the, what is his name, Bill Clinton? Oh, my um, gosh. I am, oh of gosh. course, kidding because I'm as old as sand. That is all, unfortunately, for Podcasts for America, however. However. <laughs> Thank you to our producer, Jocelyn Frank, and as always, Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. David Axelrod, you are a shining star. Pleasure to be with you. Thank guys. you for taking the time. It was delightful. And let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. Mark Leibovich <laughs> will answer. <laughs> we should keep that on. That's so that awesome. That is so awesome. That was Hang David up. Axelrod keep hanging that. up keep the phone because he's that that busy. Once again, our email address is podcastforamerica@gmail.com. Mark Leibovich will answer mm-hmm. all emails written. And if you like us, please be sure to tell a friend or two. Subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover this magical show. For David Axelrod and Mark Leibovich, that's the first time I've ever signed off like that, I'm Alex Wagner in New York City. Until next time, thanks for listening.